is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. And hello again. Welcome to Enter Sad Men. It's good to have your company. My name's Steve. With me, as ever, are my uh, my headbanging chums, Mark and Richard. Good evening, boys. Good evening, sir. Hello. And the three of us are primed to have um, a good old gas, I would imagine, about three more albums, which we are going to insert into our coveted Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame. It's very simple. I'm sure you know if you've been with us before. We pick three hard rock, heavy metal albums, usually, but more of that in a minute. <laughs> Based on a theme taken from the years, and we choose the year, the years we choose in 1970 to 1995. There are parameters. Um, as I say, you know all that if you've been with us before. We review them, we score them, and then we rate them and deposit them into the Hall of Fame, our very own Hall of Fame. And since this is episode 34 um, of the pod, and since we do three albums each episode, Mark, even allowing for my crap maths, I'm well aware that this episode is quite special. Yes, it is. Tonight we pass the 100 mark. So we will have the top 100 in the Hall of Fame. And we will continue the list below that. But that's kind of, that's a significant milestone. Um, and I personally, I think the album that is the 100th album that we talk about is a fitting album for that accolade. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, well, we'll see if we agree on that. Well, anyway, our, our Hall of Fame, Richard, as you know, is a, is a many splendid thing. And if anybody wants to have a shifty at it, all the albums we've reviewed so far, our views on them and where we rank them all, check out our website, which is entersadmen.co.uk. Um, but, yeah, Rich, 33 and a bit episodes in, and there's plenty of diversity in them, their charts, isn't there? Oh, yeah, we've, we've picked another three that couldn't be more different this week, haven't we? Just when we thought the last episode was diverse. My goodness. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. So, uh, well, let's, let's, let's do this thing then. So this is, as I say, episode 34. Our randomizer came up with religion. So we've decided to call this program Watch the Sad Men Pray. Little nod to all you metal church fans. And, but did any of us choose a metal church album? So let's see what we chose. And, um, Mark, what went across your radar and what did you, um, and what did you decide upon? So I, I looked at all the obvious stuff, but, I thought today, if the Enter Sad Men podcast was a Panini sticker book, we would now complete tonight at one collection because we've had Megadeth, we've had Metallica, and we've had Anthrax, and now the final sticker in the heavy metal Panini album is Slayer, and I chose, obviously, South of Heaven. Very good, very good. Um, well, that's all right. Well, that's the thrash element of the evening sorted out. Rich, what did you decide upon? Yeah, I, I looked at, you know, books of the Bible and bands associated with that. But I've gone for the cult, uh, but not probably the obvious ones like Tepsonic Temple or Electric. I've gone for their second album, which is Love. And so to me, because I was going to do Exodus, Bonded by Blood, um, but I thought a bit too thrashy for the same night. So I have chosen um, Nursery Crime by Genesis. So I suggest we have a listen to uh, some of the best bits of these three albums, and then we'll come back in a bit and have a chat about them. A merry old soul, and a merry old soul was. 
Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that little sort of delve into our box of delights um, for this evening. Talking of box of delight, there's a musical box of delights coming up imminently because Steve is going to talk us through Genesis nursery crime. And I think, Steve, you should start by just explaining why it's your favourite album. Well, it's, it's, it's actually not my favourite album. It's my second favourite Genesis album. It's, all, it's, it's part of... Well, I call it the Holy Trinity. I don't think anyone else calls it that, but to me it is, and that's um, uh, Nursery Crime, Foxtrot and Selling England by the Pound, which I think is their their golden period for a couple of years. I know others would say something else, and um, I've always preferred this this side of Genesis just earlier than the Latin. And I love Nursery Crime, which is their third album, and I've just got to be careful what I say about them without getting too over-gushy, but here it goes. Opening album sleeve notes. I, I, I won't bother with the Genesis story because... I think we all know it, the Jonathan King connection and the Charterhouse School connection, and we all know the names, Gabriel, Banks, Rutherford, Hackett and Collins. It's all, you know, we're talking one of the biggest bands in the world here, so the story is very well chronicled. What might be less well known is that they were actually on the verge of packing it in before Nursery Crime, after Trespass, um, because, well, several reasons, but the main one is that one of the, well, two of the original members departed, Anthony Phillips, who was the guitarist, and John Mayhew, the drummer, all part of the Charterhouse originals. And that kind of left voids to fill. And they did wonder if it was worth going on. And they were touring a lot and they were busy. Trespass hadn't sold well. So I think there were question marks as to whether they carried on or not. But they decided to persevere with it. They recruited Phil Collins um, in August 1970. Steve Hackett in December 1970 carried on touring. Went into the studio in July 71. Uh, well, not quite. They, they carried on writing the songs in July 1971, refining what they'd been working on went into the studio in August 71. Um, and it was pretty clear that the, the chemistry was good. You know, the three originals and the two newcomers, the chemistry was perfect. And Tony Banks made the point, he always said that what Hackett and Collins brought to the band was a kind of serious musicianship and bags of clarity and ideas at a time when the other three couldn't quite see a, an end game, a, a sense of professionalism, if you like, which they hadn't had before. And the end game was this. Um, unrecognisable from Trespass, in my eyes, in terms of its maturity. Still experimenting, still loads of nonsense in there, but they've kind of discovered a musical identity, which I don't think they ever actually nailed until Selling England by the Pound, which was the, the one two after this. But this was definitely a staging post, and for Genesis fans like me, we had everything we wanted. It was complex, it was beautiful, um, haunting, pompous, <laughs> overthought, over long, th well, no, three tracks were in the inevitable long songs that all good prog albums should have. Classical music inspirations, virtuosity. Three members of the band can play 12 string guitars. How many bands can say that? Two of them aren't even guitarists. Um, clever lyrics, bollocks lyrics, uh, one or two outstanding slabs of um, guitar lead, lead hard rock. I think it ticks every prog box. And I don't know what you boys think. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. You can tell, for me, realising and looking into these three albums, the, the, the thing that link, one thing links them really strongly is that they are a bigger sort of staging post for that band. Um, I mean, in, in the case of, we'll go into it, in the case of the, the, the Cult and Slayer, we know that they the albums divided their existing fan base a bit. 
in these three albums, the band all found some secret source. And I think, you know, as you said, with the, the arrival of um, of Hackett and Collins, it, it, it really took them up to another level, didn't it? Um, and gave them a new confidence. I've really enjoyed it. There's some stuff that has just grown and grown and grown on me. There's um, uh, some stuff that is still impenetrable to me. <laughs> And and some some very very nice pleasant stuff in between. Yeah, that's quite the myth. That's quite the cocktail, Mark. A Victorian landscape of suppressed violence and sex is how Peter Gabriel described described this album. Um, it, it was based on a mental image he had of his of his father's Victorian house, wasn't it? So, and the other thing that that Peter Gabriel was closest saying about this album was that whereas Trespass he, he saw as a more feminine album. This one was darker and more masculine, and very, so he he kind of gave the album's gender identity. I think it's an amazingly uh, amazingly technical album. I think the musicianship on it is just outstanding. We have talked in the past about vocalists whose voice is an instrument. I think Gabriel qualifies. I think I think he will polarize opinion. I think you either like Peace Gabriel's singing style or you don't. I don't think there's anything in the middle. There's some stuff on here that is absolutely beautiful. There's some stuff in here like Richard. I find just it's still growing. And I'm, and if you came back in five years and asked me what I thought of this album, I'd probably have a different view of it than the one I have while we're recording this. But I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. It's interesting, isn't it? It's um, it's 50 years old this year, of course. This week, when I've really sort of concentrated on it and listened to it through all the different instruments, um, I'm still picking stuff up that you know, had kind of passed me by before, little things, little bits. But I still just get, I just get enveloped in the beauty of it. And I mean, you've only got to look at the album cover for Christ's sake. You know, there's a there's a kid clouting another kid's head off with a mallet. So the, the darkness is obvious. I know it's a very controversial album cover at the time. Apparently, I don't know, but yeah, I, I, I was, I'm delighted to listen to it and uh, and, I, and let's um, let's have a good natter about it, shall we? So just just the, the bare facts about this, as I say, it was uh, released in November 71 on Charisma Records, last less than 40 minutes. John Anthony, the producer, was recorded at Trident Studios, Soho, London, and also the AIR or Air Studios in Oxford Street, London. You all know the personnel, Peter Gabriel on vocals, Steve Hackett guitars, Tony Banks, countless pianos and all sorts of other things, Mike Rutherford on bass, Phil Collins on drums, but also vocals. They all do backing vocals. Highest UK chart position was 39. There are seven tracks. Wikipedia says it sold 60,000 copies in the UK. You can forget about that. It sold a fuck sight more than that. Nursery Crime, three on side A. The Musical Box for Absent Friends, Return of the Giant Hogweed, and then side B. He's got Seven Stones, Harold the Barrel, Harlequin, Fountain of Cell, Matches, and we start with The Musical Box. And just wow, 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 wow. Ten-minute epic to open up. Favourite of all Genesis fans. Uh, it's absolute favourite of mine. It's just a beautifully layered, long, glorious ebb and flow. It's this Genesis in a, in a song. To be honest, I can, I can give it no higher compliment than that. I absolutely love the opening four or five minutes. Uh, I think that um, vocal motif of Play Me My Song is amazing. Hackett introduced the that little guitar motif around it as well didn't he because he says that he, he he listened to it and went we haven't got actually a musical box sound on the record so he introduced that and together that just makes the track for me that's brilliant I, I think all 10 minutes are brilliant the way it starts weirdly tuned 12 string guitars weren't they as well as sort of just trying to I think recreate some of that those sounds I guess around 
uh, Gabriel's Victorian theme. This is a song you've got to listen to on your own in a dark room or, you know, through good stereo or just sit there with headphones and feel weird as Gabriel Gabriel's voice crawls around inside your head. It's quite unnerving. And so I, I think it's brilliant. I love how it uh, ebbs and flows, big sort of who-type ringing chords, and then it all quietens down again. Uh, love to have seen how Gabriel actually sang this song. He, he sounds so close to the microphone because he's singing so softly, and yet it's totally clear inside your head. So they really, really thought about, about this. And, yeah, the little layers, the little sounds, it, it's a magical piece of music. It's eerie. I mean, the, the, the singing's eerie, isn't it? And it, what, what's interesting about it is it's actually the, the structure of the piece, forget all the intricacy, it's very simple. It's it, There's a quiet opening, a big, massive, you know, heavy guitar-driven section yeah. drops back down again when Gabriel comes in with that sinister old King Cole section and, and it, where his voice is phenomenal. Picks up again, goes into a second Hackett-led guitar solo and then comes back again for the final... For the, for the final outro, which is very harmonic and, and beautiful and brilliant, and to that end, this is this is ten very simply structured minutes, but there's so much going on in between. It's and it's um it's it's just so emotive, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the story it tells. I mean, <laughs> the, I guess it, this was a bit more accessible because um, I mean, there's actually you know, there's a bit of a story on the on this on the album sleeve, isn't there? Um, that talks about you know this this disembodied boy coming back to life as an old man. And, and attempting to uh, get it on with uh, with his, uh, the, the the young little girl that he knew. Yeah. So when I when I said you know the, the the best of the songs at the beginning, I wasn't trying to imply that the end of it is bad. I mean, I, I agree with Richard. I think the whole song is amazing. Um, I just prefer that sort of very close microphone, almost whispered vocal that that Gabriel does. There are bits in it though where I where you can hear that the fractures but this is an, an album that started before Anthony Phillips left, left the band uh, that's right song before Anthony Phillips left the band. yeah and then they had another guitarist in for about three months whose name I've forgotten who added bits to it the, oh, yeah. particularly the solos and then Banks and Rutherford and Gabriel sort of finessed it a bit more and then Hackett and Collins arrive and they added bits in as well so it's it's it yeah we talked didn't we about yes going away and just building these kind of things. Um, this, this feels like it's, <laughs> it's been put together over a long time, doesn't it? Yeah. And you can hear Mick, Mick Barnard was the, uh, was the temporary guitarist. But, of course, Hackett brought a level of guitarmanship that they had not had before, and he was inevitably, because he's such an influential figure. The whole point about this band is they're all such kind of, I mean, let's be honest, they're all big egos. I mean, and, and they all incredibly talented. And um, they all had parts to play. It was almost like um, th- they were so desperate to experiment that it, it became, you know, difficult to collaborate in, in parts. And some of these songs have been knocking around for years and, and they were trying to refine them. And then Hackett and Collins come in and see things differently and do things differently. And the whole thing changes. And it's um, it's almost quite extraordinary. They got it into the state they did, um, which is, you know, tremendous. Gabriel said one of his big frustrations with Genesis was that you know, Tony Banks would have just carried on until it was like 25 minutes long if he'd been allowed to, if the band had let him. And, and Gabriel was there kind of tearing what little hair out that he had, going, but there's a story we need to tell as well, and the audience have to get it and, you know, all the rest of it. And if there were, if there were any doubts about them getting it, he, he would go up and put a costume on anyway and come back onto the stage and just, 
thinking yeah. about. It's just let him get on with it. So the musical box, yeah, it's um, ah, it's it's a, it's a fantastic opener, and then um, it goes into um, a short piece called uh, "For Absent Friends," which was written by Hackett, his first kind of contribution, significant writing contribution on its own, rather than just contributing to other songs. Um, and of course, it's sung by Phil Collins, um, one of three on the album, which. This is probably the, one of the more indifferent songs, I, and I'm 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 reluctant to have to mark yeah, it. No, some I mean lovely, just lovely lyrics, lovely lyrics, lovely yeah, re, re, really build a scene, yeah. don't they? Passing by the padlock swing, things around about still turning. Ahead they see a small girl on her way home with a pram. Uh, so it's, it's a really nice story, definitely, very definitely a song as opposed to some interlude. Difficult to give it outstanding marks because it's a, just a very simple song. Yeah. And vocals yeah. over dual guitars. Tony Banks said, "Oh, it's not my favourite." <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. yeah well, what hasn't got thundering keyboards throughout it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the big organs or whatever that he uh, that he likes. Yeah, um, but they they did do those things carrying on. You think about a chat like "More Fool Me" or "Saying the by the Pound." They did do these kind of you know gentle drifting kind of very inconsequential, almost almost interludes. But it's a bit more than an interlude. But it feels like an interlude to me. To me, it's just the bridge between from one classic to another classic, which is Return of the Giant Hogweed, another great Genesis staple, and a just a just a delightful demonstration of Genesis doing the absurd and touching on subject matters that no one else did because they were very clever and they could. So, on a straightforward level, this song is about a plant, the invasive giant hogweed, which is growing wildly and wiping out other species, but. Behind that, there are any number of possible metaphors and tales that you can you can dig into it. And I'm sure they're all out there on the internet, but I'm just happy using my imagination to try and get inside theirs. And that's not that easy, given that Gabriel was a complete fruitcake, but um, in the nicest possible sense. And again, more observations about the British character. That they're forever mocking quintessential Englishness, and they and they do it in this with the the bloke who comes back from Russia with the giant hogweed and sends and sends it to Q where it's inevitably just going to just ruin everything that's in there, you know, just the stupidity of an Englishman abroad. Um, There's all of that going on. But having said all that, this isn't an eight-minute joke. It's far from that because that just wouldn't work. The music has to escort it, and it does. It's very... Gabriel is most barky. I mean, if you don't like Peter Gabriel's voice, you really won't like it on this. But, yeah, no, it builds and it builds and it builds, and there's a very dramatic finish, and it's a good piece of musical theatre is how I've always seen it. Well, of course, Steve, for you, the, the ultimate Van Halen fan, here's the song where tapping was actually invented and properly used for the first time, as I understand. And Eddie and Eddie always admitted as much that one of the people he looked to was Steve Hackett, a, a countless other Spanish guitarist, but he always said Steve Hackett was one of the inspirations, yeah, and, and this... This track shows it up very nicely, yeah. He said he started tapping because he couldn't play Bach's famous Toccata and Fugue conventionally, so he started tapping the fretboard. That's a kind of different level <laughs> to most guitarists. Oh, I can't do my Bach. <laughs> I wonder if Mick Marlowe well, had the same problem. <laughs> back to Motley Crue. <laughs> we had to get back there in the end. Uh, this is... Um... I just don't. I just don't know what I think about this song. I really don't. Musically, you cannot fault it. You, you can fault some of the decisions they make about the music, but the actual creation of music is faultless. But this, it's, it's. I find this admirable, but but in the same way, I find it quite hard to listen to. Maybe that's just me, and and the fact I haven't spent enough time with the album. I doubt it. I doubt it's only you. 
That's really interesting though. Richard? I too found it still finding it a challenging listen. I suppose this is the point, isn't it, about the same goes for, for Musical Box. They did say at the Musical Box they deliberately tried not to put, not to have a theme to go back to, that every part was was different. Uh, and it does sound like it's the same in this in the, this giant hogweed. But, but what do I like? I, I think it shows off Phil Collins' drumming spectacularly. I mean, his drumming on this on this song, the whole album's great. You can see how he brought you know a new uh, dimension to to what they did. I mean, his speed, his control, uh, the power at times. And this has got some really big rocky bits and pieces in it, which I really like. It's very orchestral at times. But I do feel it could be a bit shorter. I, I like it. Collins, Collins, Collins is immense. Collins is absolutely immense, and they made the point that he took the drumming of the band to an absolutely different level. And uh, you have to listen to this if you've got the opportunity to listen to this album through the drum, because it's a fantastic lesson. It really is. And I, just, I've always wondered whether he actually gets the credit, Richard, that he deserves as a stick wielder. I'm not sure. I think he's underrated because because he then went and did a load of pop songs. Had he continued doing this stuff, I think he'd be rightly recognised as yeah, a magnificent musician. A quote from Phil Collins that he gave in a, a, an interview about this album. What are the two jobs of a drummer? Crack a joke and fart a lot. The most immodest he became, he, has, he, he was, is to say... I think I had a pretty good foot. Well, he always made the point. He always made the point that he, if he'd have turned up on time for his audition, he probably wouldn't have got the gig in the first place because he could hear what was going on while he was lying in a pool at this big mansion they'd hired out to do the auditions. And he was last in, by which time he'd figured out what everyone else was doing right and wrong, nipped in and showed off. It was Gabriel and Rutherford, wasn't it? Decided when they were going to do the auditions that they, one of the issues they had with the band in its original incarnation, was that the name of the previous drummer was... John Mayhew. The, the issue they had with him was that it took him quite a long time to get what they wanted. So they were looking for a drummer who was much more versatile and much more adaptable and agile. So they devised a whole load of quite, you know, sort of strange tests for these drummers. So if you were first in the door, you had absolutely no fucking yeah, hope, did you? exactly. Whereas Colin who was always early for everything, was sat there just kind of going, okay, yeah, all right, I can do that. Soak it up, soak it up. Yeah. Side two begins with Seven Stones, which is a, and obviously I've read this, it's a meta-narrative, because I don't know that word, of three smaller tales with three different morals. Uh, Things happen out of the blue. We can never know others' plans for us, and finally that all plans are useless because fate will intervene. But where the morals are all linked... You see, Motley Crue wouldn't do that, would they? This is highbrow stuff, and that's what Genesis did. The song, I love some of the interplay between the keyboards and the flute and the big organ sound, which is, as Richard's alluded to, it's Tony Banks' band, isn't it? So we get plenty of that. Stunning drumming again. It's just a nice track. Isn't this where we finally hear what Genesis, the new Genesis, will become or are capable of? That becomes their trademark. You, you've got Gabriel with these kind of soaring and then dipping vocals. You've got Collins, who's really understated on this, but he's he's got it absolutely right for the song, hasn't he? Banks and Hackett's interplay between the keyboards and the the guitar, which which became almost like a motif in itself for Genesis, didn't it? I think Seven Stones is the point on the album where you go, this is what Genesis were about to kind of go on and become. That's really interesting because I've never actually actually thought of that before. And now I'm listening to it again. I can, yeah, I can hear a future in it. I can hear parts of the 80s almost, certainly late 70s. Yeah, Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
this this wouldn't look out of place on Wind and Wuthering, certainly, or Trick of the Tail. Or, or, yeah, yeah, any of them. Richard? Yes, it's much more accessible, isn't it? It's big, it's ambitious, but they've kept the whittling to a relative lower level, and they're working together as a band. So again, I love the way it... It just it builds and falls. This this one does sound like it's been composed as a whole, as opposed to yeah. thrown together from lots of bits. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, I'm glad you explained, kind of explained the story because I couldn't get the link between it all. But I like I like it a lot, and and particularly the the the, the whole build towards the very end of the song as well. That that outro is is, is fantastic. So yeah, good song, very good song. Excellent. Um, and then we go into a song that actually does divide opinions with Genesis fans because they think Harold the Barrel um, interrupts the flow of the album. And it's very unlike anything they did off Trespass, certainly. And it is an unusual track at, at, at this point, although we see them do similar things later. I just think any song that can begin with the lyrics, a well-known Bogner restaurant owner disappeared early this morning, last seen in a mouse brown overcoat suitably camouflaged, I mean, it's beyond genius. I just think it's, I think it's a brilliant song. Um, I think it's a genius circuit breaker on this album. It's witty. It's very tender. It's quite sad. It's very sad. Um, it's ever so English. And, you know, bloody prog fans overthinking it. It's a great song and it deserves to be here. It's funny when prog fans say that something spoilt the flow of an album when they're already going off in 375 directions anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's a bit of fun. I mean, it, it's all right. I mean, it's because it's a duet, isn't it, with, with Gabriel and, and Collins. I mean, it's good fun. I like the conversational bit. The one good criticism of it, it does feel that the words are somehow shoehorned into the music. It's almost like, it's almost like they had two, they, they had the music for something and they had the words for something and they've made them fit. Two things. First thing to say is this is Genesis's Diary of Horace Wynne. Mm. And it's, Loads of humour in it. And you're right, it's a very dark subject matter, but it's it's done in a quite a humorous way, which in itself makes the whole thing dark. But have I misheard? Because I think it's a duet, but it's not a duet in the classic sense, because they're both singing everything. And what you hear, and Gabriel explained this, what you hear is you hear more of Phil Collins because his voice is more is has got a greater treble in it, whereas Gabriel's is more bass. So it becomes quieter. So it sounds like a Phil Collins song. Yeah. Um, but they're actually, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think they're all singing, they're both singing everything. You're right. And Collins finds it easier to do, simple as that, because if you, as you say, he's got the he's got the greater range, um, simple as that. And that's how they, I don't know why they decided to do it this way, but it was, a, it's kind of a conversational song because you've got, the, you've got lots of people appearing in this, the mayor, Harold, um, Harold's mother, um, the yeah. great British public, all sorts of people in here. And um, so maybe they, they, they chose to do a conversation. And I disagree with what you're saying, Rich, about it being jamming all the lyrics. I just think it's everything's in a rush and they're just they're simply mirroring that. You know, they're in a rush to get this guy off the roof. And there's little things in there. That, there's little things in there that are just sensational. Like they even take the piss out of security. When they mention security, there's a little line going, blah, 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 blah. This is 1971. And like us, they take the piss out of security. That's brilliant. And then take a running jump. The, the, the meanings for take a running jump. Is he telling the crowd to take a running jump? Fuck off. I don't need you there. Or are they telling him to take a running jump? Anyway, he does jump. So that's Harold the Barrel. I think it's a really enjoyable listen. And I think it's, a, I think, as I say, I think it's a really nice little circuit breaker in this album. 
perfect because then we're off that we go back into um harlequin which is a pretty piece all about vocal harmonies against a lovely guitar line and it's not complex and very nice yes uh, I, I don't have an awful lot more to say about it it is a very nice very pleasant well-constructed song and i enjoyed listening to it I don't know if this is right but is it how about um Simon and Garfunkel sing the Battle of Evermore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is a bit of art, isn't there? Yeah. But anyway, it doesn't it doesn't disturb the flow and and then it drops into it, it acts as a kind of almost like a prelude, if you like, to um the final track, which is the fountain of Salmachis, Salmasis, whatever, which is um an epic eight minute long piece which tells the story of Salmasis' attempted rape of Hermaphroditus. And if, like me, you haven't got a fucking clue what any of that means, I have looked it up. Salmachis was a nymph. Hermaphroditus, the two-sexed child of Aphrodite and Hermes. And so perfect fodder, therefore, for Genesis to just go off and tell a story. <laughs> what, are you, what, what are your thoughts? I'm less enamoured with this than, say, the other two long ones on the album. I think Tony Banks sort of started writing this when he was at uni or something. Yeah, uh, that's cool. It feels overcomplicated in its composition. <laughs> I know it's all relevant <laughs> speaking, isn't it, given who we're talking about. This was, for me, the one where it just feels there are just too many bits thrown into this that made it less accessible for me. I mean, the musical box has still got a ton of stuff in it, but it felt like it it, it, it flowed better as a musical story. Uh, in this one, you've got the complexity of the actual story, and then underneath it, music going absolutely everywhere. I've not managed to get into this, actually access it. That's really interesting. I, I, I find it, the whole thing, beautiful. Banks wrote the first three or four minutes, I think, about three minutes, and then Hackett put the flesh on the bone, which you can tell because it starts with his big guitar line and strolls on from there is, a, is kind of more of a collaborative composition. Yeah, I would like it. I love the bass playing in here, which we've not even mentioned, really. The drumming's beyond brilliant. Mm. Uh, crescendos galore into some really nice rock moments. There's a Mellotron. This is where the Mellotron is... That's its most evident. Bought off King Crimson just because they didn't have one and thought they'd add it to their list of <laughs> musical instruments because they didn't have enough. Yeah, no, I like it a lot. I just think it flows. I think it's lovely. So I think, Richard, when we get around to it, you're going to love The Land Lies Down on Broadway if you think this is complicated. <laughs> this track on this album is the closest to that yeah. for me. So therefore, I love this track. I think mm. it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I love, I love the musical box as well. So... This album is bookended by two absolutely brilliant songs. Um, really, really like this. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us which side of the bookend you like most and which track you like least? I kind of swing between the two. I think just because of the opening three minutes of it, or four minutes of it, I would have to choose the musical box, but I've scored them the same. But if I had to take one, it would be the musical box. My low... Um, it's probably Absent Friends just because I just think it's just a bit ordinary compared to everything else. Yeah, okay. Richard? Those that have scored a bit low for me are Absent Friends and uh, Harold the Barrel. Uh, yes, it's amusing, but I didn't like it much beyond that. And uh, the musical box all the time. It had instant impact and it continues to grow. It's a delightful piece of music. For Absent Friends, is is as close to average on this album. Um, and yeah. The musical box for me all day long. Yeah, so that's been that's been fun. Plenty of carrot. I just I don't know. I'm just listening to the end of Fountain of Sound Matches now, and I'm in a and I'm in a happy place because that's where that's where this album takes me to. It just takes me back. 
very evocative, very powerful, very beautiful. And I think as a standalone piece of work, it just gives us a real flavour of um, of what was to come over the next two or three years. It's been good fun. So there you go. That was an enjoyable conversation about Genesis's third album, Nursery Crime, um, from 1971. Fast forward a decade and a bit to 1985 and The Cult and Love. Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, yeah, so we're talking here about The Cult's second album. Uh, it was released in uh, October of 85, uh, recorded July and August of that year, recorded on Beggar's Banquet uh, Records in the UK. I think it was reduced, re- released on Sire Records in the States, 50-ish and a bit minutes long, and produced by a guy called Steve Brown. More about him later. Recording a couple of uh, studios in Farnham and in London. And, yeah, so the cult were, I mean, mainly and all have always been Ian Asprey and Billy Duffy. Jamie Stewart was uh, on bass uh, and uh, they had a drummer called Nigel Preston who uh, unfortunately became sort of erratic in behaviour and I think most fairly drugs related. I mean, I'm presuming that because the poor guy died of a drug overdose not long after he left. I mean, in 1992, age 28. So uh, without a drummer, uh, they turned to a guy called Mark Burzizeki, who uh, was the drummer with Big Country, with whom the cult had toured. And yeah, back to my earlier point about what links these albums. I mean, this was quite a, I mean, really a launch pad for them for, as a band and a bit of a turning point in terms of what they wanted to do. This album was really where they combined their post-punk credentials with stuff that they really started to get into so what we've kind of got here is a melting pot of the doors led zeppelin hendrix the clash a bit of killing joke probably some big country and then probably a bit of wham and abc thrown in because steve brown was a producer they weren't expecting to work with uh, but they ended up with um, with steve brown uh, and his uh, wham credentials but what he bought was again a, a, a a lot of songwriting flair and uh, which turned a lot of a number of their songs into the big big hits that uh, they became obviously most noticeably she sells sanctuary they first worked on she sells sanctuary together and because they were happy with the result they worked with steve brown on on the rest of the album and brought those new influences in you know, hendrix and led zepp etc um, and came up with love which is still my favourite cult album, which is why I decided to select this versus the others uh, for this episode. But yeah, I'm interested in your views, gents. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with Rich on this. Post-punks who love Zeppelin, what's not to like about that idea? It seems longer than it is, and I don't know why that is, because it's only a 10-tracker and it's 50-odd minutes, but it's something to do with the flow. It's, that's an observation, by the way, not a criticism, That's um, because I like this album. In fact, I like this album a lot. I always thought highly of the cult in the 80s, who I always kind of saw as a final resting place, if you like, for... 60s hippie psychedelia because there was something kind of hip and hippiness about them i just that they were just something slightly radical slightly edgy and when you see them citing bands like the doors as influence and you see that kind of native american thing that they're always banging on about that just adds to the kind of adds to the sort of flavor and that and that kind of identity i just think they're a proper punky rock band they look great well Certainly, Ian Asprey looks great. Um, great stage presence, some smash hits, which you'll never forget. Two of which, well, two, the two I like are on here. They weren't unique, 
um, but they were a band doing things their way, and there's not many missteps in this album at all. I think it's a really, really consistent, rock-solid piece of work. Um, and I love this quote from Ian Asprey, who kind of explaining why they were who they were. He said, and I quote, there were certain guidelines in the post-punk new wave movement, and that was to stay clearly away from long hair and guitar solos. So for us, that was like, great. That's exactly where we're going to start. Um, if that's where we're not supposed to be, according to some journalists, then that's exactly where we're starting. So I get there's a sense of kind of rebel hippie in them, and I love all that. And therefore, I really, really like this album a lot. Seven or eight tracks of this, perfect. I think it drifts quite badly at the end. I absolutely adore this album. It's my probably is my favourite cult album. I've got all of them. They're an amazing band, and I think this is an amazing pop album. I cannot hear Led Zeppelin in this. I can't hear the doors in it. I hear none of what you're referencing at all, other than Wham, ABC, and... And some cast-off costumes from Spandau Ballet. I mean, I love the band. absolutely love them. Would I have chosen it for this podcast? No. But equally, I can see the argument why some people would and why you would include it in a list like this. And there is absolutely no getting away from the fact that a week spent in the company of Ian Asprey and Billy Duffy is a week well spent. So... As far as I'm concerned, let's crack on and see where it ends up in the Hall of Fame. This obviously really did divide their fan base, didn't it? The reason I chose it because it is they went in that much more rock mainstream direction. Um, there was a story of someone actually punching Ian Asprey on the on in the face at a concert because of uh, of the of She Sells Sanctuary with real hatred in his eyes. Right, yeah. So it just is dividing us a bit uh, on this episode. It, it, it certainly divided their fan base. But I think, but I, I certainly hear enough. Uh, you know, I, I hear some Zeppelin. I hear some Doors. I hear a lot of, sort of psychedelia rock in here as well. And and I, I think that it deserves to be in because it, I mean, it took them real guts and real bravery to move in this direction. I think if you draw a line between you know Dream Time through Love and then to Electric, there, there is a, there is a clear line there. I don't think I'd include Dreamtime in in this podcast. No, and I think, I think if it was if it was electric and or Sonic Temple, I don't think there would be any debate at all, would there? Because those are truly kind of you know very very guitar driven albums. Look, there are a couple of absolute bangers on this album. There's no doubt about that. Okay, well let's uh, get into it, shall we? So there are ten tracks on uh, on this album, and uh, they are Nirvana, Big Neon Glitter, Love. Brother Wolf, Sister Moon, and Rain on side one. And the Phoenix, Hollow Man, Revolution, She Sells Sanctuary, and Black Angel on side two. So side one, it starts, as said, with Nirvana. Yeah, I get Mark's point. This is a pretty poppy start, isn't it? It's danceable. I heard one review saying it was dark disco. And, uh, yeah, you could imagine it being played in dark, sweaty goth houses. One thing it does do, it's not the strongest start. I think there could other tracks could have started the album rather than this one, but it does set the scene in what they're going to try and do with the rest of this album. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because my, I think my greatest hits album has got She Sells Sanctuary as the opener and I think if they'd have swapped these two over, as it happens, I'm actually quite happy that She Sells Sanctuary is where it is because it's a, a high point in a low part of the album. But what this track does introduce us to is of course um now you have to correct me when i'm wrong on this rich but billy duff is gretch white falcon guitar because it is quite a distinct sound isn't it yeah it is the thing about the cult that is absolutely timeless is that voice 
of Ian Asprey's. It's completely unique, isn't it? And he has a way of riding the guitar that you you just don't hear very often with other bands. I just think he's got... This is a perfect example of a band that, you know, yeah, they might have been taking a chance. They might have been kind of deliberately putting themselves in a challenging position, but it doesn't sound like it. This is just saturated with confidence, this song. And yeah, you can't help but move to it. Yeah. Because he was 23 when this album was released. You see him on interviews and he looks so shy and nervous, but you wouldn't know that from the way he's belting these out. I don't see the issue with this, but I think this is a great opening song for the album. I think it's absolutely in the style of the album as a whole. Mm. I think it's a perfect... Yeah. There's that lovely sort of shuffle, guitar shuffle piece about two-thirds of the way through that they move into. The thing about Duffy, the range of styles he plays with, uh, picking the chords, the shuffles, I mean, it it really very... I mean, actually quite an underrated guitarist, I think. Yeah. But it's an an unmistakably disco sound. Of that, there's no doubt. Well, there's a a bit of chic here, isn't there? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, or Blondie. Yes, yeah. Yeah, a bit of heart, Heart of Glass or something. So from Nirvana, we move on to track two, which is Big Neon Glitter. And yeah, <laughs> I found one description of it was swing metal because it's got a really heavy backline. I, I love uh, Bruce Zicky's drumming. Uh, always have when he drummed with Big Country and he, he, he drummed with Fish on his debut album. And he just brings a certain uh, unique groove to the, the music he drums for. And, and so him uh, with with Jamie Stewart on bass, I think provide the you know, this brilliant backbone again for Ian Asprey and Billy Duffy to dance over lyrically and and guitar wise. Uh, I I think it's a brilliant track too. Yeah, it's one of the tracks of the pod. Um, I can place it. I can time it. Um, card schools at a friend's house outside the Jolly Farmer pub in Chambers and Peter. I know. I can. I can. See myself having lost my dough, lying in a room with a few mates and a beer in my hand, and I remember this track, and I just thought, this is so chilled. I just thought, this is so chilled, and um, I could play this on a loop, and I would just be away with the fairies. There's a kind of, there's an almost kind of um, Adam Antine feel about the drumming beat in this, which is, there's a kind of really fabulous monotony to it, and I love monotony in my music when it's good. For something, you know, 35 years, it sounds so fresh still. I love this track. It's interesting, isn't it? That the drum you said, you know, the, the talk about the drumming and yeah, you know, the fact that Rosecki was with um Big Country, because yeah, you hear Adam Man, but you can also hear Big Country in this. This this wouldn't be out of place on the crossing. So yeah, it's a great track too. Track three on side one of the cults love is the title track and another slow paced, heavy bass lined song with a bit of added cowbell. We always like a bit of Added Campbell on the Seven podcast. This, I, I like this even more. Um, Vincent, in, in your views, uh, this is one of my top tracks on the album. Again, it's got such a big, heavy groove to it. Brilliant drums. And it, the, the, the song just builds and builds and builds. It just gets in your head, this song. It's one of those cult songs that just invades your ears and stays there. And it's, it's, it's a heavy track mm. as well. That bass line. Is absolutely relentless, isn't it? And and there's it's the phrasing in this song that I love because it, it it's entirely unpredictable. You don't see some of the 
changes in tempo coming. Oh, it's a great song. Mm. And now this is where I get Zeppelin. The driving drums, particularly in, that, in the first half of the song, the driving drums and then the little fills and then back into this, this groove. I can imagine Led Zepp having done this with, with Bonham belting the, the drums out and uh, Robert Plant singing this beautiful melody over the top. It's just bass line. That's all I've said about this song. I, uh, just It's so groovy, but heavy groovy, which therefore is a good groovy. No wonder their punk hardcore hated this. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it couldn't be more far farther removed from what they were doing before. Because the other part was the mood of this album, wasn't it? Despite yeah. the black cover, they start off with Nirvana. Track three is about love. Rain's about making love. They wanted to create an uplifting and a, and a happy album. For a lot, it wasn't moody enough. That might change in the next track. <laughs> Which, of course, is Brother Wolf and Sister Moon. There are two slower, really super moody songs on, on this album. In this song, for me, they do it well. The other one doesn't quite hit these heights. It's very moody, very dark, atmospheric. And I was trying to think, we talk a lot about the slower songs on albums, but I think this song is pretty unique for, for, for a very, very slow song. The way it starts off so minimal. And again, then the drums come in, and the whole thing lifts up another level. I don't know what you two think. Oh, that's a while. So I also think you'll be very complimentary about Black Angel because I think this is poles apart. This is vastly superior. I think it's a. I think this is um, hugely impressive piece. It passes my hammock test. Put it that way because this is the longest track on the album, but it doesn't feel it. It simply doesn't feel it because I can just flow with this. This this envelops me, takes me somewhere. There's a melancholy beauty to it. I'm sure there's some deep meaning attached. I've no idea what it is. I just think it's a great piece. Sisters of Mercy meets Pink Floyd. How about that? <laughs> Not a fan of this track at all. It's the weakest part of the album for me. It's my cashmere. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> just keep moving very slowly onward. Never quite going <laughs> anywhere. It into your cashmere dirge bucket. Yeah, it does, really. I I, I, I hear what you two are saying, but I, I, I don't hear it in this song. I was just going to say, I think Ian Asprey's voice is absolutely perfect for this song. I really do, because there's so much pain. And... It is. It is dirgy. <laughs> and dirgy. There's a mysticism <laughs> to it. There's a mellowness, and he's got that. And I, I, I can... There's energy and emotion. I love it. I think it's I think it's absolutely spot on. It's hit the mark. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly slow, isn't it? Yeah. The, the BPMs on this would be about three, won't it? Um, uh, There'll be, be, be a few more to get the average up in the next album, listeners. Okay, so um, we better try and get an antidote to uh, Mark's dirge, hadn't we? And uh, there sure is on the last track of Side One, which is Rain. What a great way to end a side of an album. It's powerful. It's uplifting. When the drums come in, it hits you. Uh, this is a wonderful song. Best song on the album. Best song the cult ever did. This is just absolutely fucking awesome. Some critics say it's a slowed down She Sells Sanctuary, but I've never got that. No. Who cares? This is just perfection. And, 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 can we, and can we be clear? Two things. First of all, I read a quote somewhere that Ian Asprey really wasn't bothered about this track. I mean, I don't know whether you've read that quote, but, you know, anyway. That aside, 
the font of all knowledge, Wikipedia, says the song was originally titled Sad Rain during its writing, the lyrics being inspired by Asper's interest at the time in northern Native American culture and a rain dance of the Arizonan Hopi people. It's about shagging, surely, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, I could listen to this all, all year. In fact, they could have put this on ten times over on this album and I'd have been extremely happy. Well, it's another good example of... of- Duffy's riffs, isn't it, that are just so recognisable, very, very simple, or but not simplistic. Not just, just they instantly, you know this. Yeah, simple in the, in the way that Angus Young and Malcolm Young are simple in the way they approach guitar work. It's it's sim- simplicity is genius sometimes, and I think that's true of the cult. One thing they weren't so happy about uh, was the was the video and the fact that. It, uh, it had been a long day, so they looked thoroughly bored. And they'd got in a, the two ladies, hadn't they, from Doctor and the Medics, because they thought that was a good idea, and so ended up looking like Doctor and the Medics. Yeah, wearing wearing cast-offs from Spandau Ballet. Uh, well, that explains, because the girls in the video were not, the, the singing group were not the Sultanas, were they, who, who did the singing on the album and couple of other tracks as well. And they're not involved at all. Right, gotcha. They involved the, there were two sisters that were the, backing singers and dancers for Doctor and the Medics, because I think there was some kind of connection. Okay, let's flip the record over. And uh, side two starts uh, with with track six, which is The Phoenix, which is a great big lump of heavy psychedelic rock. I mean, this is is Hendrix. This has got, again, some, uh, for me, some thumping Led Zepp-type rhythms underneath it. Huge use of wah-wahs and flanges and some more brilliant guitar from Duffy. It's a really good energetic start to side two. But it's, it's not just the guitars, is it? It's the bass as well again. Again, again, the bass. It's also tight, isn't it? It's just so tight. This is another massive highlight for me. Absolutely massive highlight. I, I just love... There were so many points in the intro that I thought they can really erupt here and they're never quite doing it. It just builds and builds and builds and just kind of, you know, smoulders. But I, I just love the intensity of the finish. I feel like, and I'm guessing here, I feel like it's, it's like a trip. I've never tripped. So just say no, kids. But it feels like there's a kind of wild kaleidoscope. It's all what you're saying, Rich, about the flanges and the dubbing and the wah-wahs and everything. It's just so crazy and mixed up. I think it's priceless. Absolutely priceless. And again, that monotony. If you, if you get it right, let it roll. Yeah. Yeah, it's another... I mean, they are absolutely rocking out on this. Is this just one long guitar solo through it all, isn't it? Not even a riff. So track two on side two, track number seven overall is The Hollow Man. For me, this is the first step down on the album, a song that doesn't do so much for me and weaker than the, the songs on either side of it. It's not got enough of anything for me. It's slower, it's got a reasonable riff, uh, much more regular standard drum beat uh probably the bass as well isn't quite as thunderous as in in the other tracks so yeah it's not as good as the company it's keeping everything's been wired down and brought back and it just turns into kind of quite a dull track almost it's just so safe so unlike what we've had before i'm all i'm getting is something quite formulaic which we've not had before yeah this is a big lull so this reminds me a lot Susie and the Banshees. Mm. For me, there's actually nothing wrong with this track. I don't think it is a step down. I think it's mm. great. A really good, solid, yeah. riffy, post-punk. Yeah, 
ticks my box. So Holomance followed by Revolution, which is another of my favourites of this album. I just love this song. I love the groove. I love uh, Ian Asprey's singing on it. I, th- I think it's a beautiful song. Yeah, not in the same camp as you, I'm afraid. Mm. Um, it's all right. I don't know. It's like it's, it's like a, a slightly older and more mature sibling or cousin to the dirge on side one, really, for me. <laughs> I referred the honourable gentleman to what I said about Hollow Man. It's just a bit limp. This was a single as well, Rich, wasn't it? I'm thinking. It was, um, yeah. yeah, it was the third single, I think. It's always been a go-to song for me. I'm indifferent towards it. It's it's all right. It's all right. Indifferent, I suppose, not so indifferent to the next track. How do you introduce this? It's one of those songs. Uh, probably a song that people can guess from the first two notes. That just unique guitar intro. Uh, she sells Sanctuary. We talk about the cult being, you know, this sort of, you know, are they post-punk rock, whatever. For me, th- this song typifies it because it's a song that you do not know whether you're going to pogo or headbang to it. And you end up doing both. There's a reason why those first few notes are instantly recognisable. And that's because the people who recognise those notes have heard it too bloody often. <laughs> I think I love this song. I think it suffers through through being played, you know, too much. It's, it's been overplayed. It's another one of those big songs that just end up on, you know, every compilation album. It's one of the few sort of rock songs that Radio 1 were quite happy to play back in the day. So got a lot of airtime there. So, yeah, I, I, I really like it, but the reason it's so recognisable is that it's been played to death. That's really that's really interesting. No, I, I, I disagree. I disagree. You're wrong. I still I still love this. I said I love it. Well, what, what, so what am I wrong about? Just, just, you're just wrong. I mean, the, the, what, what more do I need to say? <laughs> <laughs> you're wrong because it has been overplayed yeah no you're right you're absolutely right um i just love it i just think it's i just think it's a piece of 80s rock gold like you think (laughs) (laughs) and on that we agree okay uh so after she sells sanctuary we're on to the last track of of love by the cult and uh, that is black angel and yeah as i referred to on when we're talking about brother wolf sister moon that's how they do slow songs. And this Black Angel, the last track, is a, a poor cousin uh, for me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. As, as, as Whispering Bob Harris would have said, this is the lad of old wank. It's just a kind of, it's just a kind of folk number, really. It's, I just feel a bit cheated, because especially after She Sells Sanctuary, which is why I refer to what I said earlier. It's great positioning of She Sells Sanctuary. You don't normally get that many penultimate tracks that good. But after that, this is just a real letdown, real letdown. I think there's some harp in here even. But um, anyway, it just smacks of filler, and I don't like it. it die- the album dies with a whimper rather than a roar, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, I'd yeah. still prefer to listen to this to Brother Wolf, Sister Moon, but that's just... They're closely related. That's comparing arson with shoplifting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with that then, highs and lows, gentlemen. Yeah, well, I mean, low speaks for itself. Black Angel, I think it's fairly awful, if I'm honest. Um, so many highs, but I've always got a soft spot because I know exactly where I was when the first time I heard it, and I just I could live with that beat. I could listen to it on a loop. Big neon glitter. Um, so Brother Wolf, Sister Moon, for me, I 
don't care much for it. And rain, 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 rain every, every day. And I agree with Steve on my low, which is Black Angel. And I agree with Mark on my high for rain. Okay, so there we go. That's our second album of this religious-themed episode uh, for Enter Sad Men. Uh, And uh, we are now going to skip on another couple of years uh, to 1988, I believe. And uh, Mark is going to take us to heaven. Maybe not quite that far. Yes. So let's listen to some proper heavy metal. (laughs) Opening album sleeve notes. So yes, Slayer, South of Heaven, released on July the 5th, 1988, recorded between December 1987 and February 1988, released on the Def Jam label that Rick Rubin had bought from Def American. It runs to a nicely compact, extraordinarily quick 36 minutes and 54 seconds. It was produced by Rick Rubin. Uh, who produced pretty much all of their uh, album uh, output over the years. And it was recorded at two studios. It seems to be a kind of a recurring theme for this um, for this kind of music. Um, some of it was done at Hit City West in Los Angeles, some at Chungking Studios in New York City. Um, if you don't know the band, well, the personnel on this album were Tom Araya on lead vocals and bass guitar, Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman sharing lead and rhythm guitar duties and the incomparable, well, incomparable, certainly significantly important, Dave Lombardo on drums. South of Heaven reached 25 in the UK chart, reached 57 in the United States, sold around 670,000 records. This is their third album after Hello Waits and Rain in Blood, both of which were kind of a an exercise in speed metal, really. I mean, what well, probably wasn't even thrash, to be honest. But we'll come on to kind of why this marked a bit of a departure for them and open them up to a brand new audience at the same time. Um, it's a 10-tracker, uh, five and five, South of Heaven. Title track kicks it off, followed by Simon Scream, Live Undead, Behind the Crooked Cross, and Mandatory Suicide, which closes off side one, and then flip the baby over and you get Ghost of War, Read Between the Lies, Cleanse the Soul, a very rare cover version, Dissident Aggressor, which is a cover of a Judas Priest song that appeared on Sin After Sin. And the album closes with Spill the Blood. The band, never mind the fans, I mean, the fans were polarised by this, um, but never mind them, the band uh, didn't have much affection for it either. Um, It's a much, much slower album, believe it or not, than the two predecessors, um, deliberately so, because that was the way things were going. This is 1988, it's And Justice for All, it is um, Persistence of Time from Anthrax. So the band didn't much like it at the time. I think they admit that, well, three, three surviving members of this band admit that kind of with age comes greater appreciation. But it's quite interesting that only two of the tracks off this album continue to be part of the live set, um, which is South of Heaven and Mandatory Suicide. Um, I absolutely love this album. I, 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 cannot, I cannot even begin to express how much I like this album. Um, it is just an exceptional uh, exercise and masterclass in controlled, 
power and aggression. This is um, this is one that took me a little while to get into, but once I was into it, I couldn't take it off my turntable. I just think it's brilliant. But what do you two think? Because that's important. Yeah, before Mr. Thrash has his say, I yeah, I always find found raining blood in <laughs> a Steve will laugh, but not be surprised. Raining blood was too fast for me. I mean, that's in <laughs> that's in our, our our overkill and flotsam and jetsam territory. Steve absolutely loves it, but but it it's just um, very clever. But my my ears can't keep up. Dave Lombardo said that um, raining blood was at seventy eight RPM, and this was at thirty three and a third. But it's still it's still got, got some fast stuff on it. But when they, they slow it down, they actually become even more menacing. I think so. It is a more accessible album, and as Mark said, that whole fact that they've got. 10 songs that take up 36 minutes of time. This is, with the consistency of the songs as well, you know, all killer, no filler. There is there is nothing they've thrown in here to pad it out. And um, so that's the other thing I, I really like uh, about this album. Steve? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I, I love Rain in Blood. Um, and I think some of the tracks off there, even tracks that most people just don't get, things like sort of necrophobic and... Um, criminally insane there's a great brand there it, it, it's eight minutes quicker Rain in Blood ten tracks it's eight minutes quicker than South of Heaven which says all you need to they just needed to do South of Heaven at 45 forget the 78 and 33 45 and that would have been fine I really like it I think I, I know an awful lot of fans and me, me to a degree we were expecting a sort of Rain in Blood Mark 2 and we didn't get it and I just think there's so much good songwriting on South you just got you got to see it You've got to stand it on its own merits as what it is. It's not raining blood, and let's just distance ourselves from that, which makes me wonder what on earth did, what on earth did the band not like about it? They had plenty of opportunities to do another raining blood if they really wanted to, and yet what they've actually put together is a really, really impressive piece of work, I think, because thrash metal can have so much blandness about it. I mean, it just can. I mean, it sounds odd, almost sort of, it's oxymoronic. It's not. Um, there can be unoriginal, tiresome, bland thrash. Slayer never did that, and I was really, really impressed with what they did with this. Would I have liked more pace and hostility? No, because there's enough on here. There's two or three tracks on here that are blindingly fast, really quick, but I just think it's far more measured, and I don't get why they don't like it, because I do. I think it says a lot, doesn't it, when um, one of the criticisms from, I think, Kerry King... And Jeff Hanneman, one of the criticisms of this album was there was too much singing on it. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, and he can't sing. I mean, that's fair no. enough. But, yeah. I mean, and there are a couple of tracks where he does sing, and that's awful. I, I do accept that. But, yeah, is, is that – can you really knock it on those grounds? It's a bit flimsy, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. It is a bit. Do you ever listen? Yeah. So the album starts off with the title track, and it's an absolute statement track as far as I'm concerned. Um, the song itself is apparently about the demoralisation, I mean that in the literal sense, of modern America uh, under the pressure of the domineering deity, to quote the song, which is the media. Yeah, it's a song that might have been written, what, 33, 34 years ago, but is you know, talk about being relevant today um, as we live in this sort of COVID world. It's, I think, a brilliant build. It's all underpinned by this sort of crunching 
riff and spitting lyrics. And I, I just think, I don't know, it, it's, um, it, you get hairs on the back of your neck when Hanneman and King just kind of drop the hammer and it just goes. It's, I think it's a brilliant opening track. Really do. I've written, like I needed to write it down, I've written one of thrash metal's great tracks. Um, but it's not one of thrash metal's great tracks. It's one of hard rock's heavy metal's great tracks. It's just a great track, full stop. Um, right up there with Angel of Death. I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep referring to it as one of the as one of Slayer's best offerings because you can't ignore Angel of Death. It's a brilliant track. This is so sinister. What a sinister start to an album! It's just absolutely fantastic. And then the first crash, some great drum work. Tom Araya comes in, you know, with that big "Before You See the Light, You Must Die." And then it's all about pickups and and drop downs and layers and ups and downs and. You don't know whether to, you mentioned it earlier, Rich, do, do you pogo or headbang with this? Well, you kind of headbang or headbang faster, but you're just on edge. It's just a brilliant track. But also, just when you're thinking there's genius and they've forgotten how to be offensive, they do that brilliant bastard sons beget your cunting daughters line, and I've just, I'm just away with the fairies. Priceless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very evil. It's very disturbing. It's menacing. It gets under your skin and inside your head for me more than anything under on, on rain in blood. It, it the, the shock I imagine was, I mean, it, it this is so much slower. Yeah. Uh, and, and I imagine when the fans put the needle down on this record, they thought, what the fuck? But it's brilliant. So we move out of South of Heaven and track two is Silent Scream. Uh, it's based on the Jack Dwayne Dadner short film about um, showing an abortion in real time on ultrasound. But it's about the point at which the probe pierces the um, the womb and uh, essentially terminates the life of the child. And the child can be seen, quite obviously, screaming. So it's silent scream. This is very much, structurally, much more angel of death. This is a much more classic Slayer, full-on, fast-forward, hammer to the floor, and they're off. Yeah, one for the purists, nothing more to say. Whilst it's back to 78 RPM, compared to a lot on uh, Rain in Blood, whilst fast, there's a bit more sophistication here. There are some gaps. They're very small. I think it is clearer. Got to give a shout out on this track particular to Lombardo's drumming. I mean, it's it, it, we, we talked about Raymond Herrera in the last episode. Lombardo's just, again, similarly insane. Uh, his speed... Uh, on uh, hands and feet in this track are, are just impossible. And on top of that, you've got some a yeah, couple of again amazing solos, amazing guitar solos, really short and to the point, just just perfectly delivered. And then, and then it's back into the riff again. Well, Rubin deliberately put Lombardo higher up in the mix as well. He felt that on Rain in Blood, he was too low in the mix, and. Um, and I think what's also interesting about this album is that they've they've put the vocals further down the mix. So you get more guitar, more drums, more bass, less vocals. And I think it just works. I think it's just a better balance in production terms. The production in this, it, it's, it's very transparent. It's not overproduced. It's very, very clean, you know, so you're not getting in Lombardo's drums the, the same kind of either thump or tinniness that you'd get in a production, say, of Lars Ulrich drums. Which was the same in on Rain in Blood. It was the same. It was Ruben produced that as well, didn't he? It's, um, yeah. I never got a sense that the mix on that was any different to that, to this. Anyway, 
Silent Scream gives way to Live Undead. And from the lyrics, and I don't know, Slayer fans, give us a drop us an email, let us know if I've got this completely wrong. But I think this is about essentially people suffering from psychotic episodes, essentially being turned into zombies by being pumped full of, um, uh, what's the drug, thromazine, which is like a hugely heavy tranquilizer. That aside, this is the song where there are five guitar solos. So the first one is, uh, the first two are by Jeff Hanneman, and then King uh, does the solo between the bridges. Then Hanneman does uh, another one, another couple, and then Kerry King does the final solo. Uh, it's not a long song, and they've managed to squeeze five solos into it. It's not a long track. It's still, it's still, it's still longer than eight of the tracks on Rain in Blood. But anyway, yeah. yeah no, I like. I tell you why I like this because it's a real kind of two-parter. It's, it's still heavy and brooding, and then absolutely blinding finish. Really, really strong when it kicks off. Oh, then we go. Bit of old school Slayer to finish. It's got a bit of. Sim- similarity in the an- in Anthrax in terms of them using the different speeds because I think there are yeah. about three different tempos on this one song that they mix up, yeah. mix up really well. But as yeah, say, b- before just finishing at 100 miles an hour. So track four is uh, Behind the Crooked Cross, uh, which is a song about German soldiers in World War II suddenly gradually coming to the realisation that just maybe they were backing the wrong horse and defending the wrong cause. I think this is an absolute banger. It's got a gut-wrenching riff that's kind of got loads of threat and menace and shifts through the gears. And I love it. You know, Hanneman and King, H and K. H and K is also the, the initials of Heckler and Koch, gun which is kind of relevant because this is absolutely fucking weapons grade referee this has kind of got an old school kind of an old school metal feel to it, isn't it? You, you could play this to your nan it's 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 kind of you know it's lovely i love it it's all sort of bouncy tempo and upbeat and you love it steve i love it do you know who doesn't love it go on it's jeff hanneman absolutely fucking hates it which is why it's never been played live and his reasoning he just fucking hates it <laughs> He calls it the. I think is is it this one? He calls the um, the black mark in our copybook. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I I think this is great. I love the build at the start and the the riff is smooth, effortless. I don't think you can say that for something so fast. <laughs> but they do manage to pack some amazing grooves into these very very fast songs. So in keeping with the uplifting subject matter of the album so far, Mandatory Suicide closes out side one, and it's a song about essentially how all soldiers are likely to be victims of um, mandatory suicide by being sent to war. But this is, well, it's my my high on the album. It's probably my favourite Slayer track of all time. It's just it's so infectious it should have a vaccine. There's a piece at the start that's very, very similar to For, uh, to for Whom the Bell Tolls, and then it slips into this chugging riff. That it, that you've just got to bang to this. This is just... Yeah, it yeah. just goes, isn't it? So catchy. Again, like, like Crooked Cross, it's just proper heavy metal. There's, there's no thrash element to this. It's proper, proper heavy metal. And it's a, and it's a favourite of any Slayer fan. Love it. It is a absolute corker. So flip the bitch over and we get Ghosts of War, which starts off at an absolutely blistering pace. Completely classic Slayer, really. Everything that any Slayer fan from 
Rain of Blood would have wanted to hear. Um, and then it gets reined in at the, around about the two minute 40 mark when it drops into this sort of semi fast chug. Interestingly, Kerry King doesn't like the beginning of this, he loves the ending of it. He always used to try to persuade the band that they should just play the end at the end of Chemical Warfare. But he, could, he says he could never quite make that idea fly with them. This is just absolute genius. This is um, everything you said and more. You know, you think the start is fast. The, 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 the riff is an utter headbang out. I mean, you're just, it's ferocious. I love Ghosts of War. Fantastic song. There's a real kind of sophistication about this that, you know, we hadn't seen in previous albums. Mm. And um, Track two, side two, read between the lies. Absolutely superlative riff that underpins the whole thing. But like most of the tracks on this album, it's I think it's Lombardo's drums that really keep the whole thing together. It's absolutely relentless assault from uh, the man behind the kit. Love this. It's um, I think it's a good track two side two. It's not as good as Mandatory Suicide or probably South of Heaven, but it's not far off it. I disagree with Mandatory Suicide. I think it's every bit as good as that. I think it's um, I think this is one of those little gems that's very easy to overlook. Again, it's those subtle little time changes, and they are subtle. I mean, fucking hit you with a brick. But I mean, it, it, they are clever. Um, and there's several time changes in this that are, that are brilliant. Uh, yeah, it's a mid-paced number, isn't it? By Slayer standards, I think it's. Um, I think it's superbly written piece. Every bit as good as Mandatory Suicide. Lombardo's drumming on this is is incredible. I, I I could listen to those first eight bars forever. The dual riff in this is really, really good. So we passed the three-quarter mark on the album with Cleanse the Soul. And I'm not bored yet. And again, you know, you talked to Richard about Lombardo in the last track. It's him again. He absolutely sets the tone and the speed of this um, after a classic kind of Slayer opening. And then they just drop into this dirty, grinding, Metallica-esque kind of chugging riff. We've talked about how the band don't like it. Kerry King said, I just fucking think it's horrible. I hate the opening riff. It's what we call a happy riff. It's just like, la, 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 la. I can't see myself playing it. But after that, where it gets heavier... I like that section. I, I get why he likes the second riff more than the first. I do, but um, I think he's I think he's being way too harsh on this track. This is the one he calls one of the black marks in their history. I think, and it's just nothing of the sort. What he's listening to, I'm not because I think it's fine, absolutely fine. I don't get happy. I get the the <laughs> start riff is ridiculously fast. This track starts off fast, but again, the tight, the tempo changes throughout the rest of the song keeps it really interesting. And, and again, the short nature of each of these tracks, they finish it and you think, oh, oh, I could have listened to another couple of minutes of that. And that's it though, isn't it? They, they, they absolutely get that bit right. That, that old entertainment adage of always leave them wanting more. I think they've appreciated more the, um, the power of the riff and, 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 you know, let it go. Why do a song in two minutes twenty when you can do it in three minutes ten? None of these songs, none of these songs are um, are any weaker for being slightly longer, and it is very much slightly. Okay, so so to the misstep. Yeah, so to the misstep. So the penultimate track, for some strange reason, they've decided to cover a not very good Judas Priest song, and they do it better than Judas Priest, I think, having listened to them back to back over the last week or so. I'm kind of sitting there thinking, oh, I wish you played something of your own because I think it would have been a lot more interesting. Well, apparently it was added because to make 10 tracks. So I think it was very much an afterthought. You stick at nine 
let's let's do let's do a nine track album, boys. You know, this is the one track I was talking about earlier, Mark, about um, Tom Araya's singing because he does try and sing yeah. this, and there's a lot of drawn out notes, and he cannot hold them because he's not a singer. I know King was very pointed about his criticism of Araya in in the. Um, it says his singing was poor across the whole album, but um, there's, a, there's a black mark for this one. I don't think it should be here. No, I agree with you, other than the fact it's better than the Priest version. I think, having picked it, they could have done so much more with it. Anyway, um, luckily it's not the last track on the album because the album's valedictory track is Spill the Blood. I think is it, you know, there's this thoughtful, almost acoustic opening, isn't there? And then that gives way to a more measured sort of riff that, changes pace sort of mid-chorus or just after the chorus and and that for me it's just that change of pace that lifts it from being sort of risking being slightly pedestrian and predictable to being i think one of the album's finer moments i don't i don't share that because i do like i do like some of the tempo changes um i wouldn't have it down as one of the album's finer moments at all because i think it drops back into that plod quite quickly and it and when a track's four minutes, 48 seconds long from Slayer, there's no hiding place because this, this is a marathon. And if there's weaknesses in it, you'll hear them. And um, I think that there's a real danger they go into pedestrian mode. Do you really? Think yeah. Well, I don't think that at all. I really, really like this song. Richard, be the voice of reason. I think it's a great finish. Like the opening track, it's saying that this is what we're trying now. What amuses me a little was... The opening uh, notes with the the sort of the, the the soft symbol did did remind me of Stonehenge by Spinal Tap. Uh, <laughs> so play, play it again from the start, and then just say no one knows who they were. But then the riff kicks in, and uh, and it's great. It's a good finish. Um, okay, highs and lows. Um, Richard, let's start with you. Dissident aggressors, my low, and the opening track, South is my high. Okay, Steve? Yeah, no, it's one of those albums where um, first is best, balls to the wall, more than a feeling. Um, we, we've done loads of them. We've sat of heaven all day long for me. And the week one is Dissident Aggressor. So it's a full house on the week one for me. So Dissident Aggressor. But I prefer Mandatory Suicide. Uh, that was the that was always the one that kind of first hooked me when I first heard the album. And it's still the same today. So there you go. That is Slayer, 1988, South of Heaven. I don't think this will be the last we hear of this band, but it may or may not be the best we hear of this band. We'll find out in the coming weeks. Um, right, having listened to them all, we need to go and score them. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right, so the scores from us three are in. And let's see how our three albums this week fared. And we'll start with Steve's choice, which was Nursery Crime by Genesis. How did we score it then? Well, we scored it quite differently, actually. Um, you gave it 7.214. Uh, Mark gave it 7.4. And I never made any a secret of the fact that I liked it a lot. And so I've cleared the eight barrier with 8.07 for a final score of 7.57. To house Genesis in the mid-sevens, um, I'll regard that as, uh, as a decent achievement. For their third album and the best the best is yet to come from them as well so rich how about the cult and love yeah not too different uh in terms of our scores of this uh steve you gave it a 7.75 mark gave it a 7.34 and i gave it a 7.85 and that uh, meant that love got an overall total of 7.65 or so mark how a 
about Slayer South of Heaven? Well, interestingly, it did all right. I did better than I thought it was going to do, actually. Uh, so, Steve, you, you gave it a 7.65 dead. Richard, you gave it a 7.45 dead. And like Steve with Nursery Crime, I didn't make any secret of the fact that I absolutely love this album. So I too cleared the eight barrier with this at an 8.1 uh, to give an average album score of 7.72667, which yeah, pretty decent score. But the big question, of course, is where does it uh, put all of these albums in the, um, the 100 Up Club? as it now is. The Hall of Fame has reached 102 albums. Let's find out where tonight's actually sit. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so we've got now, as Mark says, 102 albums in our Hall of Fame. So we will come in a minute to the first Shed a Tear, two albums that have actually dropped out of our top 100 but how have these three fared? Well, actually, all pretty well, because they've all three of them found their way, not just the top 100, but into the top 50. Genesis and Nursery Crime uh, comes in at uh, number 46, uh, just above uh, Aria Speedwagon's High Fidelity, just below Crocus's Heart Attack. Love by the Cult is a little higher at number 38. They squeeze in above Babylon AD, and just below Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. And Slayer are the best of the bunch tonight, and they've come in at number 33, and they get in just ahead of Bad Company's debut, and just below ACDC's Highway to Hell. So pretty good positioning for all three of those, gents. Yeah, not terribly surprising. The order of them might be. Yeah, I suppose the one I was slightly concerned about was mine, obviously, because I didn't know how you boys would uh, respond to it. But um, comfortably in the top 50. I, uh, what I love about this is the juxtapositions. Are you getting Genesis next to Crocus and Cult with Babylon AD and Slayer and Bad Company? What, what, what a double bill that would have been. <laughs> Slayer and Bad Company. Who'd your headliner be? Um <laughs> But that's what's so that's what's so great about this process, isn't it? That we're um we're just this church, which as we've agreed on already in this episode, is very very broad. It throws up all this sort of stuff, and it's priceless. And the other good takeaway from tonight is that were our Hall of Fame to stop at one hundred, which of course it won't, it will go on into the thousands. Two albums have gone out in this episode, and Bad Steve isn't one of them. So I'm delighted. <laughs> but it's interesting how you say, Steve, about how we would judge. Genesis, because surprisingly, I think one of the albums that has dropped out yeah. is another what is sim- classed as similarly progressive, progressive mm. rock album, which mm. is uh, Yes is Fragile. I'm really amazed that that, that is one of the first casualties, uh, uh, along with one that probably wasn't so surprising for all of us, uh, which was uh, is uh, Raven's Rock Till You Drop, now sits at uh, number 102. Okay, so that was episode 34. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it. Um, And we thank you for your company. And we'll see you next time for episode 35 of Enter Sadman. Cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sadman podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary. And as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show 
by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.